Jordan, how's it going? What's up, Rob? Not much. You got something for me here? You got that, you got that look. <sighs> it's been on it. my mind Lay all week. Me. I've had this question on my mind all week. I don't know if you had these commercials in Canada, but do you remember, I think they were ASPCA, the animal welfare commercials with that Sarah McLaughlin song, The Arms of an Angel? Yeah, yeah, sure. You remember those? Yep. Okay. When you see those, you're obviously driven to an emotional place. Like, no one wants to see, you know, little dogs and cats suffer. Of course not. And the ask is, will you donate? If you do not donate... Or, if you don't donate every time, I guess this could be a multifaceted question, does that make you a bad person? Yeah. You think Absolutely. So? Yeah. When you hear Arms of the Angel, if you're not getting out your credit, for whatever it is, whatever the cause is, if yeah. you're not getting out your credit card, okay. if that doesn't move you, if that doesn't move you to part with your measly five little dollars, you're a monster. I'm sorry. There's just no other way of- Oh, Okay. Of describing it, I'm sorry to say. I'm gonna play did it you, right now to get you to subscribe to this show. No, <laughs> let's put the song in here. <laughs> did you donate? No, I did not. No. Oh, so, all right, all right. I'm speaking from experience. See in hell. We can we can, we can put it in right now. Like, you know, there's two people right now that need your help. They're struggling. They're struggling podcasters. Jordan and Rob, they work every single day slaving away in the content mines, trying to bring you a podcast where they can talk about political and social issues, video games, sports, films, and other topics. They need your help. They're starving. Rob has literal children that he's trying to feed as well. How can you not? If you're listening to this show for free, what is wrong with you? What is the matter with you? I'm going to put the song over the back behind that to see if we can really move some people to to support our work here. Well, you need to do like the soft, impassioned voice when you do the pitch, too. So if you could bring the song back for my part now. Okay. For just $5 a month, you can support this podcast. Your support not only helps keep the show going, you also get an extra episode every month. How's that? You get a son, you get an image of Rob and Jordan, and you're now our parents. And you get a monthly you get a monthly update to like let you let let you know how we're doing. <laughs> we're really thriving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. We can workshop that. Fix it in post. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Good. Good. I yeah. like it. This no, wasn't I even didn't... planned. I just actually was thinking about that question all week. <laughs> I did not donate to those. No. I do really yeah, like Sarah. I, I, I unironically like Sarah McLaughlin's music, though. I really do. She's got a number of very good songs. Very, very good singer songwriter, yeah. Sarah McLaughlin. Canadian. I, that's the only song of hers that I know. Oh, she's got a bunch. She's got bangers. Sarah McLaughlin has got so many good songs. Bangers. Sarah yeah. McLaughlin has bangers. It's not. Yeah. Okay. Building a mystery. All right, I'll check it out. Classic song. Adia. Uh, Arms of an Angel. That's maybe not my favorite one. There's others as well. I would have to remember. Okay. All right. If you say so. Sweet Surrender is a good one. Well. If I recall. I was naming Sarah McLaughlin. And these are bangers. Certified bangers. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Sweet Surrender by Sarah McLaughlin is indeed a banger. Absolutely. All right. Well. I stake my entire reputation on it. people are... What reputation? Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh. If if people were sufficiently motivated to subscribe by our Sarah McLaughlin backed message or plea, you'll get access to an episode I did earlier this week with Mark Joseph Stern. And I say I did it because Rob slept through it. Well, sleepy Rob. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, I was not asleep. I didn't sleep through it. I merely okay. completely, I had an ADHD moment and I just completely forgot that we were doing, normally, normally we do the show at a certain time in the evening and we had agreed to do this one earlier and I have my brain that something just disconnects there when I don't write it down or add it to a calendar or whatever. 
And I had this moment of horror on Monday when I was I started doing my stream and I was looking at Twitter and I was I saw the the link from you from like 90 minutes previously sending me the invite to do the show and I was like, ooh, I completely completely forgot that we were doing that. So that one is on oh, me. Yeah. I I messed up. But you did a fantastic <laughs> job though. It was a great talk. You didn't even need me to to slow Thanks. you down to so really I was doing you a favor, giving you a moment to shine like that. That was so selfless of you. <laughs> so You're kind. welcome. Yeah. Uh yeah, thank you. No, it was good. Uh Mark Joseph Stern writes at Slate and he is a Supreme Court watcher like he, he follows these cases closely he follows all the circuit court decisions around issues that we care about and some of the high profile cases in the supreme court this term could be announced in the next couple of days or couple of weeks the term is winding down we have a lot of cases that we still are going to see decisions on uh, student debt uh, we could see the independent state legislature theory a couple cases regarding college admissions the right Quote, the right of a small business owner in Colorado to discriminate against same-sex couples for their wedding websites, very similar to Masterpiece Cake Shop, but there are some dissimilarities. All of these cases and more, we dis- I discussed with Mark on our last premium episode. You can subscribe to get access to it. It was a really, really fun conversation, really insightful. I learned a lot and I felt like I already knew a lot about these cases, but I learned even more. So I think you all take value from it and help make sense of the Supreme Court decisions we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. And on today's episode, we've got investigative reporter Daniel Bogusla of The Intercept. We had a fantastic talk with him today. He's in Tel Aviv right now. Um, and given that it's Pride Month, it was actually provided a really interesting opportunity to talk about the ways that countries like Israel or Canada or the United States of America kind of weaponize social justice language or weaponize pride or support for the LGBTQIA plus community in order to kind of pink wash um, you know, it, apartheid or settler colonialism or imperialism or what have you. And, you know, this kind of very sinister phenomenon and how we should stand against that while also supporting and standing with uh, communities like the LGBTQIA plus community, which is under this kind of attack right now by these reactionary forces. Um, we also talked about Trump's, uh, the whole documents, the documents hoax, the boxes. No, it's the boxes hoax. That's what he's calling. That's what he's calling it. <laughs> that was very funny. And I'm missing something out. There is another part of that conversation that I've, even though we just did it a few minutes ago, I already forgot what it was. What was the, what am I missing here? Cornell West and third parties. Yes, that is it. We talked about Cornell West and his, his announcement from this week that he's uh, no longer going to be running on the people's party ticket and the, instead going to be uh, trying to win the green party nomination and the implications of that and third parties in general, as well as other sort of efforts like the no labels group to kind of like purposely threaten uh, a sort of spoiler run in an effort to extract concessions from Biden. And that whole phenomenon, really, really interesting discussion with Daniel Bogoslaw. Yeah, it was great. Um, we should get to it. What do you think? Let's do it. Daniel Bogoslaw, investigative reporter from The Intercept, is going to be joining the show right after this. joined by dan bogoslaw of the intercept dan thank you so much for being here we know it's late for you you're you're in tel aviv right now what's that like yeah thanks for having me uh tel aviv is insane it is one of the most bizarre places i've ever been uh it is like a weird mix of midtown manhattan williamsburg uh except all the people doing construction are palestinians shipped in it's actually here for pride uh, Tel Aviv Pride, just one of the most deranged things ever. You know, you have Palestinian workers shipped in building like pride stands with rainbow flags and then having to like go back over the crossing, you know, for like this deranged parade. So it's been a wild trip. Uh, done some interesting reporting. Uh, glad to be here. 
I mean, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, I mean, th- that opens up a whole bunch of avenues <laughs> of discussion that I think I'm interested in exploring, but that's uh, that's really getting ahead of ourselves. We're supposed to have the lighthearted hello and the little chit chat segment. I'm just curious. Uh, my, my, my synapses are firing now to interrogate some of these things, but uh, I don't know if we need to go down that road right away or or what. All right. Well, pause your synapses. Pause okay. your synapses. We could we could before we get started. Dan, we have to ask you because we ask everybody. If you thought Israel Palestine was an important subject, gamer? we got to get to the really important stuff before yeah, that. This, this is, is more big, important. This is more serious than <laughs> where even you that. fall on this issue. <laughs> All right, look, this is this is hard for me to say because I usually like I'm usually only confronted with this question when people hear me clicking, and I'm not known as a gamer, so people are, are often very distraught when they find that when my roommate goes out like on a date or he's like away on a work trip, I do play Assassin's Creed Greece or like, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what that's called, but like that's Which the one premise. that was. Um, uh, I think it's Odyssey. That's, yeah. Yeah. But that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. So you, you just play one game. I just play <laughs> Assassin's Creed Greece. Just that one. Yeah. I mainly only do the same thing over and over again, which is like, you just, you fight these like giant pitched battles. And sometimes, sometimes I get caught by friends or family or my roommate walks in. I'm just, I'm just hacking. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it. That's my, that's my one and only ride or die. Do you quickly turn off the monitor and just like yeah. shuffle around in your desk to I, make it look I, like you're doing something I've else? I've definitely done that. I've definitely like clicked <laughs> it off when he comes in and I'm just like kind of sitting on the couch. I like, got my phone. He knows. He's yeah. like, you're playing Busted. Odyssey? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm reporting on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, so yeah, you're a gamer. Yeah. Like, all much. right, we should proceed. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I haven't you. really been, I haven't been gaming all that much lately. Like I did start cyberpunk 2077 a few weeks ago and was enjoying that, but I got totally sidetracked by the NBA playoffs. So really all my gaming time has got sucked into watching hoops for the last couple of months. And it feels weird, honestly. Like it was fun yeah. watching the finals. I, I liked seeing uh, the Nuggets win the chip, as I predicted on this program. Um, but I feel kind of I feel this weird emptiness now. I got so I was so used to watching like three, four hours of basketball every night. Now, now I don't know what I'm going to do till like October when the new season starts. I feel kind of lost. Yeah, losing basketball and hockey in the same week, and now we just go to the, the worst period. The worst part of the calendar for sports, where it's just baseball, early it's season so baseball. Boring. Yeah, it's 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 bleak. Yeah, I'm reading again. What? Who am I? What? If this is outrageous. <laughs> and what, another thing about this hockey as well, it's like you know, congratulations to the fans of the three or four year old Las oh. Vegas Golden Knights franchise, you know, or whatever. But I got to say, these the fans of this franchise and some of these new expansion teams, the Seattle team as well. They don't understand that hockey's not about being happy. They don't get this. It's about suffering. It's about yeah, pain. What's up with, what is up with that Seattle team? I do not follow sports Kraken? that closely. But the, yeah, Kraken, it's just like I'm seeing like weird guys I know from the Pacific Northwest <laughs> be like, Kraken, we love Kraken. It just doesn't seem – it doesn't hit. Well, you know, it doesn't I, seem real. I support – It sounds like a, a – Harry Potter team. Yeah. I mean, I support, I think it's great that Seattle gets a hockey team. You know, Seattle's still reeling all these years later from the loss of the, the unfair, unjust loss of the Sonics. Yeah. Um, but you got to put in time though, before you start competing for championships and doing well. Okay. It take, you're supposed to be miserable most of the time. This is what being a hockey fan is. The whole, this, uh, this, these new, ex- I guess they, they put in yeah. like these new expansion team rules that allowed Vegas and Seattle to be like competitive right away, I guess. But that's you're not supposed to like it. Then yep. that's the problem for the the fans of these new expansion franchises. You're supposed to be painful and miserable you yeah, for years. My first, my first and only hockey, first and last hockey memory is like as a middle schooler going to a Bruins game and seeing like one adult Bruins fan like pissing in the street and then another adult Bruins fan pissing on that guy <laughs> by accident. Hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, you could see that on a Tuesday in Vegas. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily a hockey thing. <laughs> uh, the clip, I don't know if you guys saw it, but the clip after, you know, the third period ends, Vegas 
officially has won the Stanley Cup and the camera pans to the audience in the stands. And normally with any other team, especially a Bruins, a Rangers, you know, even a Caps, like most teams and most fan bases would be going ballistic they'd be yeah. they'd be nuts just a bunch of tourists and then you pan to this vegas crowd <laughs> this yeah they're all just kind of like on their phones filming like <laughs> nodding their head cool yeah just like they don't look at they this honey. don't understand the weight of what yeah. just happened <laughs> yeah, well neat we're here yeah. come on <laughs> so so depressing yeah it's about the struggle oh man well well, let's get into a little bit less important stuff. I know, Rob, did you want to continue picking Dan's brain about Tel Aviv? Okay, well, this is a kind of an interesting discussion that I've seen us completely switching gears to this incredibly serious uh, subject matter. But I think this is like an interesting discussion that I've seen lately, uh, and I think it's fitting given that it's Pride Month, um, which is about the, the pinkwashing of imperialism or in the case of Israel, Zionism or, you know, colonialism or whatever, whatever ism you want to uh, attach to that. And I think it's, it's created this kind of weird problem. I was seeing some discourse the other day from some other uh, individuals talking about this, this pride parade that was taking place in the States that was like attended there, like, like many pride parades. There's these big corporations now that have floats and there was a float from uh, uh, Lockheed Martin as well. And then they were criticizing this socialist organization for participating in this pride parade, suggesting that they were somehow like co-signing or agreeing with or wanting to stand alongside these big weapons manufacturers that are kind of like co-opting this pride event. And I'm just interested like, to hear from you, Dan, as you're in Tel Aviv, you mentioned Tel Aviv pride. Um, if you have any insight or thoughts on that about the ways that, you know, in, in many ways, it has been kind of sinister in some ways to have these big corporations or to have, you know, um, states like Israel co-opting this kind of uh, rain or rainbow imagery or pride messaging in order to kind of uh, obscure this kind of like colonialist violence that they're participating in or this kind of apartheid that we're that we see in Israel. Um, and I think the question that I have is like, where, where do you think the line is and how do you think we should stand kind of against that kind of pink washing of, uh, imperialist violence and also at the same time stand with people in the LGBTQIA plus community who are under this like direct assault right now from these very, uh, reactionary forces who are, you know, you know, engaging in this campaign of uh, this anti-trans hatred, framing trans and other queer people as being groomers and pedophiles. Like, it's a really important moment that we stand with these communities and support them. But how do we separate that support with also recognizing the ways that these powerful entities are kind of co-opting this messaging in order to, to pinkwash their own violence? Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know. I, I don't think there's one, I don't think there's a super easy answer. I think no, it's kind of a big same way that you. Yeah. corporations or, or, or states have, have fully like co-opted pride and, and, you know, support their employees. You know, they've also developed, you know, ESG funds, they've created, you know, vast corporate, you know, diversity schemes to, you know, just completely wash over all, all kinds of evil stuff that they're doing, you know, behind the scenes. And I think like, I mean, on the one hand, it's useful to point out that hypocrisy and, and, you know, show that, you know, giant banks, uh, giant investment firms, weapons manufacturers are simultaneously lobbying and funding right-wing politicians who are working diligently to curb, you know, people's rights to all sorts of things. Um, and I think like, you know, there is something like deeply sickening when, you know, you see photos of people, you know, in pride marches, you know, from, from, you know, the 20th century and you see like the vitriol and the hatred of people in the crowds. And you see the fact that like, there was a time when this was like really scary and not state or corporately sanctioned and did represent this, like putting your body on the line in the middle of the street where anybody can get at you. Um, to, to sort of show support and community. And I don't know, it's hard. I remember like, you know, I remember like a pride event, like a parade in Portland, Oregon, and like being like pretty sickened by all the corporate sponsors. But then also like there being kids who would like come out from like the boonies in Eastern Oregon 
you know, who are in like deep conservative, uh, you know, Idaho borderlands. And they were like, oh, this is, this is still our shit. Like this is still the biggest group of, you know, LGBTQ people we've seen, you know, in our lives and this rocks Raytheon and all. So, you know, it, it's hard because it's all mixed up that way. Um, I think it, I mean, there's something particularly perverse about it happening, you know, in Israel. I think, you know, that, that image definitely stuck in my mind of like seeing, you know, Arab workers building these like, you know, basically, you know, like towers. Um, and then also having, you know, tons of like European and international tourists come in to, you know, this city that, that, you know, is built on the remnants of, of Palestinian towns and villages. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal. It's twisted. I think you just have to scream at all sides at the same, <laughs> at the same time, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to stomach. I'm not sure exactly what the answer is. Yeah. It's that, that Lockheed Martin float was in DC and them along with other, you know, military contractors and uh, corporations who don't have a pure ideological commitment to uh, protecting and defending the LGBTQIA plus community are always in this parade. You have to wonder like why they're welcome to begin with, especially when these companies donate every cycle hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, to anti-LGBTQIA plus Republicans, because those people are more likely to do their bidding when it comes to increasing the military budget, which ultimately a lot of it flows back to military contractors, Lockheed Martin included, but ultimately would fire people if they needed to or they got in the way uh, if they were, you know, gay, lesbian, trans, whatever. These companies through their donations, not just get money back in terms of, you know, contracts uh, or an increased budget. They also protect these people and continue helping to elect people who want to make it easier to, again, fire these people who are peddling this groomer pedophile conspiracy about members of the LGBTQIA plus community are pushing all of this trans uh, kids in high school or middle school sports bullshit that results in a story we saw this week where two grandparents stopped some like elementary school track meet to have some nine-year-old's genitals inspected that is fucking insane in in canada by the way in case anyone thinks that this is only happening in the united states this kind of panic that's been going on led by the far right yeah this culture war has, has spread across borders and is largely funded by these companies. In many cases, a lot of dark money flowing to these groups. I know, Dan, you did a story on um, Chris Rufo and his group, and he's really been one who's pushed this type of bullshit. And a lot of companies and special interests are funding that operation. Ultimately, it's a distraction. That type of stuff is a distraction that keeps people pointing fingers at each other rather than focusing on what these companies are doing to make our lives worse. But I also think there needs to be blame laid at the feet of the liberal politicians who, you know, open up their offices with rainbow buttons, you know, for Pride Month, and then completely fail to provide any sort of economic platform that that works to shut off the culture war. Because the entire point of the culture war, like if you go and you you look at Rufo's statements to the press where he's being candid, right? Like his whole point is that they're he, he's he's you know he drinks a, he drinks some of that Kool Aid, but he's also extremely intentional in the fact that like if we weaponize this shit, nobody's going to ask questions about anything else. Like if we can attach the term critical race theory, if we can attach the term, um, uh, what does he what does he call it? Um, uh, curriculum transparency, so that every time people hear those words and we tie them to a bill or a measure that's going to completely rat fuck poor people, but their brains are overwhelmed with that fear that we've instilled, then, you know, we can push it through. And the way to fight that is not trying to wage a counterculture war. Democrats are terrible at doing that. You know, they're not, they're not killers. They're not, uh, they're not able to compete on the same plane. And so I think there's also a conversation that needs to be had about how liberals and Democrats are also, you know, complicit in this by, you know, crying crocodile tears at the terrible things going on in state legislatures through the country and completely failing to put forward any hard political solution to to end it. 
Yeah, I mean, you have the Biden administration, you know, putting up pride flags in the White House and saying things like, "If you're if you're transgender, then I stand with you," and everything. And I don't I don't want to say this nothing, you know, it's not nothing. These kind of gestures, but at the same time, while they're making these kinds of empty gestures, um, I just I say it's not nothing, and then I describe it in the same sentence as an empty gesture. But at the same time, though, while they're doing that, <laughs> you know, there's trans kids being taken away from their parents right now in Florida. And like, what are what are by what is Joe Biden and the Democrats meaningfully doing to address that? Um, what are they meaningfully doing to address this panic that's that's taking over where teachers and doctors or parents or anyone that's even remotely interested in providing this sort of gender affirming care? to trans kids are being framed as criminals and and pedophiles like what is the joe biden administration doing about that not really anything all they really have is this words and they want to get credit for standing with these communities by using the words but they don't seem to be willing to like expend any political capital and meaningfully defending these groups that are under attack uh, right now yeah i think i think like you know a lot of a lot of stories that haven't been written or made it into the national press in the way that they should is about the total breakdown in state Democratic parties, whether it's New York with the total bloodbath that happened in the midterms, whether it's Florida, which is just like a complete and utter clusterfuck of incompetence and broken bylaws and just old, ancient people, you know, holding on to control in state parties because they're total psychopaths. And it's like some shred of power in their miserable lives to sit on a Democratic state committee and just drive it into the ground. Or Massachusetts, which I reported on several years ago about how the state committee, you know, worked with the DNC to completely screw over a young insurgent candidate challenging Richard Neal, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, who's used that powerful seat to just completely screw over Americans over and over and over again. Um, so I think like, you know, another thing is just be like a, a national politician who actually understands, uh, you know, hammering the DNC, hammering the, the state parties into actually becoming effective you know, organisms in, in the way that the right has capitalized on, you know, you look at what they've done in, in uh, you know, state houses and election boards, you know, all, all up and down uh, state politics, and it's extremely effective. Democrats can't hold a candle to it. That Richie Neal race was against Alex Morse, and that was a good example of how, like, young, I would say, well-meaning young people fell for the weaponization of language and words and societal issues by the Democratic establishment. What happened, and obviously you could speak to this in much greater detail since you reported on it, but for people who don't remember, Alex Morse, again, the progressive challenger to a very corporate Democrat, uh, was accused of uh, impropriety in his role as an adjunct professor because he added somebody I think who was also a student at that college to his close friend's story on Instagram, which college Democrats there who later were revealed to have ties to or wanted to work for Richie Neal accused him of uh, something that they said was something that uh, is signaled or demonstrated intimacy by adding someone to their close friend story on Instagram. And people then accused him, uh, who, who Alex Morse is gay, and you can see parallels to how people talk about gay people on the right, calling them groomers. They accused him of all sorts of nefarious behavior. Ultimately, it was all just totally a sham, and they just totally smeared this guy because he dared to challenge this corporate Democrat. Yeah, I mean, and I think that shows how, like, sometimes the you know the way that the cultural excesses of the right often work directly for them and benefit them in a, in a straight line, and sometimes the cultural excesses of the left, you know, are completely self sabotaging and defeating. And I mean, I want to talk about like Richie Neal, like uh, filing your taxes. Have we have we seen this? Have we heard about this? Like Richie Neal is the guy who makes it impossible to file your fucking taxes. They were going to create a free version. The IRS was going to create an easy, free way to file your taxes so that you don't have to pay fucking money to TurboTax and Intuit. And Richie Neal took, I'm pretty sure he took more money from in, like Intuit than anyone else. And then he just shut that shit down. He just like, can you imagine the campaign ads if a, if a Democrat made it easier to file your taxes? Can you imagine what that would do for Democrats odds, you know, countrywide? Um, and and what happened? This guy got completely screwed. His challenger got completely screwed. Uh, Jim Roosevelt, great 
grandson of of the president Roosevelt was was the was the legal counsel coaching these kids on on how to set up the smear campaign. Some kid wanted to intern with Richie Neal, who was part of the whole setup. I mean, just crazy. I mean, fortunately, I saw Alex actually recently, like a year ago, maybe he he got out of there. I mean, he's now basically mayor of P Town, so he's he's sipping pina coladas on the beach. He's doing okay, <laughs> but you know, the rest of the country is not. Yeah, there's been this kind of interesting reaction that's happening as as corporations have started to absorb and weaponize this idea of like social justice or racial justice or whatever diversity and then you see these big banks and intelligence community the famous like there's that CIA ad from a year or two ago like I'm a I'm a neurodivergent <laughs> yeah. millennial with anxiety or whatever and join the CIA or the way that these intelligence communities or banks or weapons manufacturers or states like Israel have tried to like co-opt this kind of message and absorb the energy from these social justice movements in order to like, you know, pink wash their their agenda or their their history, and you know that's led to the right framing these huge corporate massive corporations and banks and fucking Disney as being these like left wing radical uh, organizations, which is preposterous. But then you also have this reaction from the kind of like a certain segment of people that I think identify with the left that now think that to care about social or racial justice um, or to care about LGBTQIA plus issues or pride month means that you agree with these, with these big institutions and that it's somehow now liberal to support these things. And it's something that we should be pushing away from and we shouldn't be supporting these communities and we shouldn't be talking about these things, which I think is pretty preposterous uh, on its face as well. So it's just kind of interesting how, this very cynical co-optation of this sort of social justice language by these big corporations and weapons manufacturers and states has led to a reaction from both the right and with people that identify as the left who have now twisted themselves into this ideological kind of pretzel to be like the really the way to be on the left now is to not support any of these social justice issues and to actually reach out to these sort of right-wing communities that agree that, about all these things, which is just a nonsensical, uh, incoherent position to have, I think. Let's get into another topic that I know you have some thoughts on and we talked about last week. Cornell West is announcing he's he announced last week he is running uh, for president on a third party ticket. He initially said he was going to run with the Movement for a People's Party, which, as we pointed out last week, has ballot access in only three states, has not, to our knowledge, ever fielded a federal candidate and is ultimately just kind of a, a narrative campaign. We'll just we'll give them that. It's a narrative campaign. People have said, and I agree, it's not a real political party, but he has affiliations with that group going back years through different protests or narrative campaigns around different issues, whether it's foreign policy or Medicare for all. They are at best a narrative organization. He announced yesterday he's actually going to run with the Green Party now because they actually have ballot access in all 50 states and campaign infrastructure and electoral infrastructure that the former Movement for People's Party does not offer. As we talked about uh, last week, that never made sense that he was going to run with them to begin with because, again, the ballot access hurdle is just insurmountable unless they had some grand strategy to get ballot access in the other 47 states between now and the election. But we'll see. Dan and Rob, I'm curious if you think this was is going to shake up the election. Is he going to be a, a strong candidate? Is this a new like Ross Perot or Ralph Nader type figure? Or is this just, you know, somebody Democrats might eventually blame if Biden loses? I mean, I think I don't know. I saw I saw a clip of him. Uh, I can't remember who who was interviewing him, but he was talking about the the switch up. And I mean, I have to say, like when I first like saw the tweets about that, I was kind of stoked, and I was kind of like, okay, here's a guy who's just he's great on camera, he's great on the stage, gets on a Green Party ticket. Like there's there's something about him that I feel like is going to get boosted, you know, way more than Jill Stein. Um, and, but then, I don't know, I saw, I saw the clip of him and like, he just, I mean, the guy's old, like he's been in the fight for a long time and, you know, he just didn't quite have that same juice from whatever the last, last time I saw him was, but I don't know, it does raise interesting questions given, you know, I think this specific cycle and the weird third party stuff that's going on, you know, especially with no labels and, you know, this, this proposed 
third party bid with one Democrat, one Republican um, <laughs> that, you know, this this bizarro group is proposing. Um, and so, I don't know, my mind immediately went to the fact like, you know, what if they could just raise a little bit of money, you know, a couple mil and, you know, just try to do the same thing that No Labels is doing, which is basically like just completely bludgeon Biden into concessions um, and then, you know, cut a deal uh, at the end. You know, I've been reporting for two and a half years with, you know, one of, one of Manchin's closest former allies. We actually have a podcast. He's finally going on the record um, tomorrow uh, for the first time. But, you know, he's been saying that Manchin's going to run, uh, you know, for over a year to me. Um, and he, you know, also is like, people are saying that this is all just for the, the big money groups that are behind no labels, but it's also for, it's also for Manchin. And, you know, what he says the play is, is that he can negotiate, you know, an ambassadorship, uh, you know, more lofty appointments. He already got his wife appointed to the Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, and, you know, maybe he's going to, you know, maybe he's not going to throw it to Trump. Maybe he, he throws in for Biden and tries to cut himself a deal. So, I don't know. That whole tactic to me is very intriguing. You know, I don't think Cornell West is going to raise the 70 mil that No Labels has in its bank, but I do think it's interesting to think about, you know, what if this becomes a new part of, <laughs> of U.S. politics where you just have these third party candidates who actually do have money, who actually do, you know, don't have a shot at winning, but have a shot at, you know, fucking one of the real candidates and they just cut a deal. I don't know. I don't think anyone's really tried to do that in recent memory. As I was saying the last time this came up, I never really understood what the People's Party was really bringing to that equation in a hypothetical Cornell West presidential run. It seemed like he was giving them way more credibility than they were bringing. And like you said, without ballot access, without really being a real political organization or political party, they did have those a couple couple thousand obsessive Jimmy Dore fans, though. And that's <laughs> something you don't want to you don't want to take lightly. You know that could swing the election either way, but. Um, I do think it was like, you know, like, like we said, Cornell West, regardless of that, what I thought was kind of a flub or a fumble kind of right out of the, out of the gate, someone that I have a lot of respect for, who I think has really valuable contributions and progressive ideas around, you know, healthcare, around war, around social racial justice and all these things that, you know, progressive minded people are supposed to care about. Um, the Green Party seems like a way better fit just in terms of infrastructure and in terms of just not being affiliated with this kind of grifty, scammy uh, People's Party stuff. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be important in this process that uh, since Biden has completely neglected to uh, really fight for any of the progressive ideas that he kind of campaigned on or even the whole agenda that he campaigned on, which he kind of jettisoned as soon as uh, Joe Manchin said no to it. I think it's going to be really important to have Cornell West's voice out there and going in the media and talking about some of these things. Um, like you said, of course, the, uh, I don't think Cornell West is going to have a surprise uh, presidential victory in the Green Party uh, ticket, but I do think it's important to have his voice out there, be out, be out there as part of this process. And um, you know, the same when it comes to the little spoiler stuff as well. I like I don't I couldn't see anyone in the Democratic Party or Joe Biden cutting a deal with Cornell West, but um that's my stance is gonna remain the same though, about whether whether he could act as a spoiler or not, which is that if Biden loses to Trump or whoever it ends up being, um, if they physically restrain Trump from from running, which is looks like they're gonna have to do. Um, if Biden loses, it's not going to be because of Cornell West and the Green Party. It's going to be because they didn't really fight for their progressive agenda that they campaigned on, uh, especially for young people. A lot of the most biggest priorities with student debt, with uh, you know the police and reforming the police and defunding the police, all of these things were just completely neglected. The environment, they're open up, opening up new drilling in these national parks. I mean, for every issue that young people especially really care about, Joe Biden has shown no interest in really pursuing or following through on any of that stuff. So if they lose, it's going to be because of that, not because of Cornell West or the Green Party or any of that, any of that stuff. Dan, I'm curious how you can differentiate between these two. I mean, you've done some digging into no labels and what they're doing. And as we talked about before we were recording, you know, their polling shows that they would take a significant chunk of votes, potentially from Democrats, if they were going to uh field a candidate in the general election. And I, I agree with Rob. I don't think if if it's you know if if West runs it's anyone anyone's fault but Biden and the Democrats if Biden were to lose. 
I think it's distinguishable because of how much money is behind no labels and how they would run. You know, the people who would vote for West are obviously never going to vote for Republicans. And I mean, maybe maybe some would. But for the the vast majority of people who would vote for West wouldn't. And that's like the, you know, kind of the furthest left for the most part who would break for him. But no labels positions itself in a very different way. Could you talk about, you know, who is funding this, how they're running this operation and, you know, what their ultimate goal is? Yeah, I mean, that one of the most, one of the most interesting things to me is the fact that, like, you kind of have these, at least from way, the way I understand it, you have two factions within no labels. Like, you have these foot soldiers who are actually, like, total morons who, like, believe in the press releases that they put out like some of the research i've done into some of the like fairly important people who are like managing large parts of the organization like they are true believers like they actually are like those weird like radical centrist freaks who are like they just love eating white food they don't have any salt in their house like they just are so excited about the color beige, like the like, and that is just their entire life. Um, but then, of course, you also have like all these big GOP, you know, spenders who are who've been funneling cash, you know, into the org. You have the sort of accumulated interest groups that have surrounded Mansion, Collins, um, you know, who, in a certain sense, uh, you know, are, are often uh, right wing and conservative, but are really like, you know corporatists in the end of the day. Um, and I think the media has had a hard, like on the one hand, it's been total clickbait. The media hasn't been able to not report on this because it's an anomaly and it's, it's strange. And there's, you know, 70 mil is a lot of cash. Um, but on the other hand, like there has not been like a deep reckoning. There, there hasn't been a, a breakthrough moment until I think today or yesterday when the post reported that like Biden was convening, you know, a serious war room to address this problem with like big players from sort of the centrist Republican camp, uh, you know, Klain, all these different people, because now the, you know, they're, they're realizing that like, they're not messing around. This isn't some, you know, uh, out there idea. This is a real new development that, that people are not prepared for. And if there's one thing that, you know, the white house has demonstrated time and time again, it's that it's not fucking prepared for anything. And I think that the terrifying thing is the fact that the man, you know, overseeing the show right now is Jeff Zients, who, you know, even, even Politico, even the people whose job it is, is to just feed positive slop, uh, praising the ghouls running the white house to, you know, the rest of the beltway and the country, even they are like, have, have done pretty lightly critical reporting of Zients and his terrible management style. Um, which I think demonstrates the fact that there's nobody driving this ship. And so, great, they're going to go convene their meeting, but they haven't even been able to solve, you know, basic um, political problems. And so the idea that they're going to be able to address this radical, new, bizarro, unprecedented challenge um, seems unlikely. So, I don't know, Manchin has, I've reported on Manchin for a long time. He's pretty much always gotten what he wants. He's dodged federal investigations. Uh, you know, he's he's been able to run his coal company throughout all of this and profit off of it. You know, the fact that he's not able to just, you know, swing his dick around on this one too and 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 get whatever the hell he wants. I, I don't know. The guy the guy survived this long. There's only one place left to go. Boy house. Yeah. Right. I I'm I'm almost done with the fight of his life. Uh the book by Chris Whipple, which is like, you know, the palace intrigue book uh of like the last year and a half of the Biden administration. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It is like one after one thing after another, it's just the Biden team like looking at each other and realizing, Whoa, we were not prepared for this. Like whether it was how are you um, not prepared the, for it? The, the Afghan withdrawal, <laughs> the war, the war in Ukraine, which he gives like a he gives way more credit to them on the, the the invasion of Ukraine than other issues. But for the most part, the general theme of this book is like they had no idea how to prepare for any of this stuff. I, I got to tell one. If only anyone could have know predicted. It. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's true, but the the best <laughs> one I've heard, the best most dramatic Biden fuck up, uh, which I'm working to confirm, but the a rumor I heard is that um, he accidentally said that he would choose a black woman as a running mate, but really uh, he was supposed to say um, a, a person of color and that the, the, the chosen VP was Cory Booker and he misspoke and they couldn't walk it back. Um, and to <laughs> me, that is incredible 
and just rules so much. Um, hopefully, hopefully that. I don't know if it's true, but I want it to be true. I I very much want it to be true. That makes sense. Because I mean, like you think about the primary and then all the justifications that they had to do to smooth over the, the busing uh, spat in one of the debates. And they talk about that in this book. He talks about how, uh, that was a really uncomfortable situation for them to work through. And Harris is just beyond further validation of reports that she's like very, like verbally abusive to her staff. And that's part of the exodus, um, that she just like, is in way over her head. There's a lot of people inside her team and in the white house who will feel that she's way in over her head and can't, that's why she, you don't see her in media as much, especially for unscripted. Well, and stuff. She does keep yep. getting saddled with like the hardest, most impossible to figure <laughs> out things too, which she inevitably, which she inevitably yeah. can't handle. Obviously. Yeah. Just go, go resolve the crisis at the border, Kamala. And she stands there and has a bunch of like Xanax <laughs> word, word salad. And it's like, no, that was not, that was not good. But, you see, it's, well, there's and, almost kind of a the, sense of vindictiveness to the how she keeps getting thrown out there for those oh, kinds of things. No, I mean that's that's true, but also I mean just like the coverage in in the liberal press of her too is like really makes you feel like there's nobody who has her back, you know, in the White House. It's like you know you also just get the sense that it's like nobody's sticking their neck out, like <laughs> nobody wanted this. You just have like those five dedicated yeah. K hivers now online that are like those Japanese <laughs> soldiers in the in the jungle you know, decades after the end of the war, like it's over now. You don't need yeah, to do they're, this they're still. Firebomb my house after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, God, I, I, I just had um, to take a brief sidebar here. Cause you were talking about that, the lack of seasoning. You made that offhanded comment. I just had to mention this like really hilarious story that I saw where on Weibo, like among like and Chinese social media, there's this new trend emerging of Chinese people eating what they call white people food and eating like unseasoned garbage, basically like as a as a meme, essentially, and like torturing themselves with it, which they've apparently called they call it the lunch of suffering. <laughs> These like white bread, uh, uncrusted sandwiches, and like unseasoned food, and they've just been torturing themselves with it as a as a joke, just to to dab on us. Um, and I did just on the subject of talking about no labels. I, I I also think it's just it's really funny how it seems like every couple of years someone comes along and they act like they've discovered this amazing third way, this amazing like formulation or analysis that no one has ever considered. <laughs> what if we took conservative ideas and liberal ideas and kind of mix them together into one thing as no one has tried this. It's, and they think they've invented this new synthesis when really you're just describing the last like 40 fucking years of economic policy and how the, how Western liberal governments have, have basically operated. You know, it's hilarious that they, they keep thinking they've invented this, this well, the, new the thing. The other funny thing is that like some of like, I think the other like third way organization <laughs> is like turning against no labels. Um, yeah, which is, is also just, the like, fourth really one. I guess. Like, look at look at the fucking monster that you guys created. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, not like this. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, our, our our final our final story we wanted to talk to you about, Dan is uh, it's the big one this week. Trump was indicted on I think thirty seven counts related to his handling or mishandling rather of classified documents yeah the walls are closing in he's gonna be locked up for sure uh he 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 gave a speech at bedminster last night after he was arraigned in miami and among many other things had i think his greatest quote and delivery yeah. of a quote in years like it was like it was classic trump he was like i did everything right and they indicted, they indicted me. me and like the crowd's going yeah. nuts and he just it's just like in that raspy yeah, voice it was just i think the delivery just like popped me so hard but he's in, he's he's claiming you know he didn't do anything wrong it's a witch hunt fox had the chiron juxtaposing biden with with Trump saying wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after, you know, charging his political opponent. I mean, do you, you guys at the Intercept have a pretty clear head around all this kind of stuff? Like you you treat issues of na- national security uh, and, and national intelligence seriously. 
but without going overboard, as so many liberal journalists, writers, or analysts have done, especially in the past few years. What do you make of this? Is this as big of a deal as everyone says? Or, you know, is there a kernel here, but maybe people are, are overblown? I mean, I I don't know. I, I will say that, like, today I, like, tried to force myself to read the reporting on it. And I, like, opened one of the New York Times stories on it. And it just felt like a group of, like, kids in middle school, like, writing a mean Facebook post about someone they don't like. And I just, it was like so hard to like read it because I feel like I've read this story so many times. And like, you're just like, wow, like they really like ratchet down any editorial oversight when like they start writing about Trump. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's completely insane. I mean, uh, is it, you know, I guess it's like, yeah, it's, it's fucking terrifying that he's showing nuclear plans to people. At the same time, it's like, is that something he couldn't have done by picking up the phone when he was in the White House? Like, you know, it, it's, it, he, we know how deranged he is, so it, it's sort of like, you know, it, and he still knows a lot of national security secrets without those documents. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it is horrifying. I think it is terrifying. Um, who knows? Is, I guess, it, yeah, it's unprecedented, sure. But, you know, again, like like Manchin, you know, it's, it's, it's just losing the football. It's like my dad, you know, I feel like I could create like a scrapbook of all the times my dad has texted me being like, man, did you see the latest indictment? Did you see the latest scandal? Like, this is going to be it. Right. It's just like for <laughs> yeah. years, just text, text, yeah, it's text. Been seven years of this now, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. It's like, and then they do the breakdown. This is what it says. These are the players. This is the lawyer, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, my feeling is sort of like, I don't know. I guess with all these things, I'm always interested in like, what, what are the pieces of this that are not going to be covered by the times? Like what, what are the, what are the elements that are inconvenient um, maybe for both sides about this? And I think there's been a lot of coverage of like, you know, the way that things are, are unequally redacted and, and the way that, that penalties are dished out in a very unequal and arbitrary way. Um, I think that's one interesting piece of all this, but um I also, I don't know, as, as an investigative reporter, I, there's some sort of allergy to these types of stories where it's just like, oh my God, they just get so much coverage and so many explainers, you know, every motion, every move. Um, so, but yeah, so I guess the answer is I have no idea, but I'm doubtful. <laughs> I'm very doubtful. I, I will say, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah well, I, I, one I, question for you is like, I saw Iglesias, you know, normally like Iglesias posts just go, you know, straight through. Um, but you know, he was talking about how, like, you know, this is the best thing that could happen, uh, for Biden and for liberals, you know, he's going to string this out, you know, he's going to, if there's any chance DeSantis, you know, could pull an upset, like this is going to give him the firepower and ammunition he needs to, to quash that. And, you know, it's a huge fundraiser. It's a huge you know battle to run against. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I talked to Ken about this a lot, like just how much of a fucking clown show DeSantis is and how unlikable he is, but it's also like. You know, he in in a certain sense, he doesn't necessarily have the same populist base as Trump, but he certainly brings in this other element. You know, as you as you know, no labels kind of came out and said like, well, if DeSantis is the nominee, like we'll we'll pull out of this whole game. And it goes to show you that like there are these slightly less populist, more corporatist, you know, big donors who are down to fully throw down behind him. Um, so I don't know. It, I, I think the other piece of it is just thinking through like, what does this do for? 2024 like does it you know it's definitely going to give him a ton of, of ammunition um and you know they say it's different but uh remains to be seen yeah i mean i, I mean I'm, I'm pretty on the record with both downplaying the seriousness of this and some of these other trump accusations um i don't want to i don't wanna suggest that he's like innocent or anything like that it's like of this of this crime he certainly appears to be quite guilty um and it's actually quite it's pretty fucking hilarious how he had <laughs> numerous opportunities to just give back these documents they were literally like hey can we just have those back now uh we really need them and you're gonna get in trouble if you don't give them back and he was just like no <laughs> he, just, he just didn't until it escalated to this <laughs> point where he's got serious legal ramifications for it and the, the photos that came out of Mar-a-Lago with all the boxes, it's iconic. You know, it's it's objectively hilarious. These big boxes of top secret documents in like the fucking bathroom at Mar-a-Lago and all this stuff. Like, it's just hilarious. 
And it's very funny for Trump as well to frame himself as being the victim of some witch hunt or conspiracy when he's very obviously clearly guilty of this. And he's saying to his his fans and everything or his supporters, you know, it's not just me, folks. They're coming after all of us. They're coming after me, so I can't say but it's like, no, they're kind of just going <laughs> after you. It's like you were the one with the documents. It's not really the people that are at your speeches that are that are involved in that. Um, so all that being said, uh, I don't, you know, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I'm not going to pretend to like get all up in arms or upset about the sanctity of the the fucking documents or America's national security or whatever. Um, and I think it gets into a bigger discussion about you know criminality of criminality coming from the presidential administrations and like where where does this document crime fall on the scheme of crimes that have been perpetrated by American presidents or other American politicians when you talk about war crimes or torture or some of the horrors that have been inflicted on the world by uh, uh, American administrations or corruption, you know, and I don't doubt like Trump is very obviously corrupt, very obviously is engaged in corruption and criminal behavior, but it just seems like there's a certain amount of corruption in Washington that's totally normalized and legal. Like we talked with Ken Klippenstein a couple of weeks ago about like Jared Kushner just getting handed these like multi-billion dollar uh, handouts from the Saudis, totally open and shut case of like corruption and access and double dealing. But it just seems like that's completely, that's not just Trump. That's everyone in both parties is implicated in that kind of stuff. You mentioned Joe Manchin and his obvious corruption and his coal companies that he or his kids are running. Um, you can talk about Hunter Biden in Ukraine and getting this getting this cushy job on the the board of a Ukrainian gas company while his dad is the vice president of the United States and helping to overthrow the previous administration of Ukraine, depending on where people land on that. I think people know what my feelings are on that. Um, But that's what I mean. You know, it's like there's a certain level of corruption and access dealing that goes on in Washington that's just totally normalized and totally legal. So in order to nail Trump on these things, they've got to go into these directions for these like kind of acceptable crimes that they can punish because the real stuff, you know, assassinating a foreign leader or engaging in economic warfare in Venezuela or Iran or anywhere else or doing this kind of corruption, that's totally okay for presidents and for politicians to do. So they've got to kind of bend over backwards to treat these other things like these stupid, like these boxes of documents with this like real seriousness or to, to, fixate around these things because if they start actually going after the real corruption and the real criminality that was going on all of a sudden a lot more people than just trump are implicated in that i have to say too like reading the new york times piece like there's a there's a moment where where like there's an allegation that trump he like holds up like a war plans map and he's like look at this they gave this to me he's like but don't get too close he's like don't look too closely but i have this (laughs) and like my first thought was just that like I was like, they should look through Bill Clinton's house because like, yeah. I can totally see Bill like having a couple with like one of his golf buddies and just being like, you want to see something cool? Yeah. And he just like goes over to a drawer and just <laughs> opens it up. You know, just like some insane top secret classified thing. Like Bill would totally be down for that. Like yeah. they, they, they meet there, you know, that's where the Clintons and the Trumps have total common ground. So I don't know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see a subpoena of that, of that house personally. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just it's just so funny the idea of Trump just hanging on these documents so he can just wave around Mar-a-Lago to impress Kid Rock or whoever, <laughs> and then to frame himself as being the victim of this conspiracy. <laughs> Fuck, it's just you know what? It's just objectively hilarious, and I think if something is that funny, it shouldn't be illegal. There, I said it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, whoa. Put some respect on the name, please. That's Director of National Intelligence, yeah. Kid Rock, you're talking about. Like He he had authority to also review those documents. It's a matter of there national that security. Quote from Kid Rock and Rolling Stone or whatever. He was like, I don't know if I should be seeing this shit, man, or something like that. It's just like, man, this is incredible. I love this. I love this story. It's fantastic. So great. Well, well, well Dan, we know it's late for you. Uh, you're on Tel Aviv time. We want to thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Follow me on Twitter at drbogusloff and on theintercept.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. 